0: Well, friends, we're looking at Romans chapter 6 and uh, verses 15 to 19. You'll find it right there in the worship folder and in the Pew Bibles as well. It's a group of soldiers, and uh, they are repairing a defensive barrier, digging. And uh, there's a horseman. And he's coming up very fast, racing from one place to another, and as he rides by in a hurry, he notices that the leader of this uh, group of soldiers is barking instructions at, at the soldiers as they work, but not actually doing anything, right? And so as the soldier races by, he pulls his horse up and uh, talks to the uh, the leader, and asks him why he isn't also digging. And then with um, dignity, the leader of the men says, well, sir, I am the corporal. And uh, the, uh, the horse rider apologizes, gets down off his horse, rolls up his sleeves, and works alongside the soldiers. Once they finish repairing the de- defensive uh, barrier, uh, the, uh, the rider on the horseback who had helped the soldiers then turns to the, uh, the corporal and says, uh, Mr. Corporal, next time there is work to be done an insufficient amount of soldiers to do it, Send word to your commander in chief, and I will come and help you. The man in question, George Washington. Paul, in our passage, is describing slaves of righteousness serving the cause of Christ. Listen how he puts it. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of uh, obedience, uh, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Here, in summary, is what I think Paul is teaching. Analogy to illustrate reality to lead to action. You'll notice that he begins uh, with a question. And if you're attentive to this passage, you'll realize this is the second time he has asked this same question in chapter 6. And once more, it evokes apostolic horror again. By no means! Or in the vernacular, you must be kidding. And then this question that he answers once more and asks again in the same way introduces an analogy to illustrate a new reality that will call us to action. Analogy, reality, action. First, a startling Analogy. Look again at verse 16 as he introduces this picture of slavery. Don't you know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. Startling analogy. Slavery. Now, of course, ancient slavery was not the same as pre-Civil War slavery. Slavery. In fact, I've been told by someone whose opinion on classical literature I fully trust that if you went to Rome, it would be possible if you asked to see a physician that the doctor that you saw would be a slave. Occasionally, indeed, a person who'd been granted freedom by the family that uh, he served would uh, refuse that freedom in order to keep on serving them. Now, of course, without doubt... uh, Uh, On the other hand, uh, many slaves were treated with unspeakable cruelty, but not all. What's more, ancient slavery of all kinds, benign tumor or malevolent tumor, was not then associated with the evil of racism as it is, of course, today. And so uh, you'll note that in the footnote perhaps of your Bible, the word slavery here is also given an alternative translation as bond servant. And that is there to indicate that when Paul uses the analogy of slavery, we are not, you and I, to think of the 19th century slave trade. So similarly, um, indentured servitude. The exchange of labor and liberty for provision and protection was actually common not so long ago. And variations are still practiced under different names. Some internships, for instance... So uh, when I first traveled to North America for a year when I was just 18, I received a plane ticket by working on a farm for the summer before I left and then again after I returned and I got a ticket to travel across North America by working for a year on a camp, brief, minor, moderate, gratefully received, acceptable, temporary form of indentured servitude. That said, of course, the evil of human slavery was itself never, ever remotely God's ideal. Don't let people who do not read the whole Bible carefully confuse you on this fact. In the Old Testament, there was actually a year of jubilee when slaves were to be set free because in the picture there that runs throughout the Old Testament, God's people are a people who have been set free from slavery to Egypt. And in the New Testament was well, a recognition that uh, a minority group had no power to change society at the time. But by the same token, Paul specifically says to slaves that if they can win their freedom, they, they should. Now, what makes this analogy so startling is not any mistaken associations with racist horrors of antebellum slavery. This verse is actually like a... Splash of cold water across the face. Why? Because it exposes what I think is the most powerful myth of our contemporary society, namely individual autonomy. You and I, we tend to think, because we're surrounded by this idea, that we choose what we want and we live the way we want very hard for us to see this Bible view of uh, reality, of things, that we are always ultimately serving or worshipping either God or an idol, either Jesus or self. Uh, in the Bible's worldview, you cannot choose to be free of all masters. The only choice you have is to decide which master you will serve. On the one side is the misery of what we call addiction, pornography, alcohol, or more acceptable forms of addiction like selfish ambition. Trampling everyone else under its feet. And as I have discovered pastorally, often, last of all, trampling under its feet the one who is addicted to the selfish ambition. On the other other side of this choice is instead the mastery of worship. We're called to a higher calling, a goal much bigger than the self. Called forward, not driven on. Called forward by a compelling desire to win justice for the oppressed. Heal the broken hearted. Mastered now by the master's values. Not dominated by a hell of no greater ideal than the self. The self which it seems to me is the real ideal behind all idols. You see, Paul is using this startling in your face analogy here to shock us awake. We cannot coast, you and I. You cannot live in some Switzerland like spiritual neutral ground. You're either going to be captivated by an enslaving passion to the beautiful Christ, or you'll be dominated by death. You cannot choose not to choose. The most famous illustration from the Old Testament, of course, is towards the end of the book of Joshua where he calls the people together and asks them whom they will serve. There isn't another option, you know, no one. We all must either channel our energies to life or dissipate them to death. Leaders must choose. Law courts must choose. Now, of course, that's very relevant today. The Supreme Court is debating the rights and wrongs of Sexual libertarianism or religious liberty. They must choose. There's no middle ground. Let's choose how we use our money. We must choose how we use our time. Life is not neutral. Each ticking moment, time's clock is either invested in him or wasted on self. Choose, Paul says. You're going to be a slave anyway. Serve the right master. Uh, I often use a very simple illustration, but first time I used it when I was talking to someone, I thought, this is such a silly illustration, I will never use it again. And then it was helpful, and so since then I've used it over and over again. So here it is. Imagine a fish swimming in a fishbowl. Fish says to itself, I want to be free. And so, if you can imagine, it jumps out of the fishbowl and lands on the stairs. And there it is in its newfound freedom. But actually just in a different medium, this time air, not water. And fish was made for water. See, we're all made to serve God. It's this lie that, that see, freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want. I mean, just think about it with me. A man is not free who jumps off a building to his death. He's been bound by some, know, could be any number of things, perhaps an enslaving self-hate. No, a man or woman is free who is doing what he or she was designed to do in their sweet spots, we say. Freedom is living to the full as a person that you were designed to be. There's no such thing as total individual autonomy any more than a fish is free as it gasps for watery breath while it dies outside of its intended environment. And so this startling analogy, Paul is using it to say, we must all choose whom we serve. Second, there's a grateful reality. Look at verse 17 and 18, how Paul immediately interjects with praise. But thanks be to God. Startling analogy, but immediately, oh, it's praise. Thanks be to God. That you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Now, so say, I want you to notice that Paul immediately breaks into praise and gratitude to God. And he has a reason for it. He says we've become obedient from the heart. And I think, this is just my view, I think Paul is picking up one of the key tropes in Romans here. The obedience of faith, which is at the beginning of Romans and the end of Romans. And I think it's another way of saying the same thing. You may or may not agree with me on that, but either way, what Paul is saying is, we are by God's Spirit given a new heart, a new desire to follow God from the heart. Now, not perfectly. Paul, as we'll see very clearly in a moment, doesn't expect Christians to be perfect, but there's a new willingness, a desire, a heart, a want to please God. And this uh, is in particular obedience to the standard of teaching. And again, as is typical for Paul, a very precise phrase. Uh, this, This teaching that he's giving then is not theory, it's life change. Let me put it like this. When we teach, we are to be taught. When we are taught, we are to listen. When we listen, we become obedient to what it is that we understand by faith and so we are set free. A new heart desire to please God is what a Christian is. Set free from the dominating dictatorship of sin. Now free to serve as they were made to be. And so he thanks God. How, how great is this God who has set us free by his word? Don't think of Bible teaching as of intellectual. It's something that has power to set you free. Right? standard of teaching. Thanks be to God. And then, of course, with this gratitude, it reminds us that Christians are ever to be thankful people. A Christian who's not thankful is a bit of a contradiction in terms, really, isn't it? A Christian is to give thanks because a Christian is one who's been rescued by God. Therefore, give thanks to God. Gratitude is the melodic line of a Christian's life song. Christians give praise in prison, sing in sickness, whistle in weakness. An unthankful Christian makes as much sense as an uncoordinated ballerina or an unamusing comedian or an unrolling wheel. It's part of our new reality as much as oxygen is part of the reality of the air or wetness part of the reality of water. Could a man who has been rescued from death by drowning be unthankful to the person who rescued him? Could a Christian who's been rescued from a far worse death be unthankful to God who rescued her? And yet, so often we are, aren't we, you and I, unthankful. We live at best with mild praise. And so Paul is modeling for us thankfulness, taking our eyes off our painful experiences, suffering, difficulty, confusion, the news, the... the, the What's going on in our world today? What's happening in the culture? Yeah, we need to think about these things. But for a moment, take your eyes off that and looking at this new reality inside that God has put there through his word that shows that we, however falteringly and imperfectly, desire to please God and therefore we are his. And we've been set free from the bondage of the master of God death, and now serving the Lord of life. And so we turn our words away from complaint to praise. We don't gossip with our words. I love this little statement about gossip. The one who gossips to you will gossip about you. Yeah, but we Christians let's be so filled with a sense of this new reality. Wow! Something has happened to my heart. I, I'm not perfect. I don't always do the right thing. In fact, I'm constantly fighting not to do the wrong thing. But there is this desire to please God, and therefore I'm His. Thanks be to God. This new, grateful reality. And that leads, third, to a call to action. Look at verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Not the one way, but now the other way. I love the beginning of this uh, verse when Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms. Unlike some preachers, Paul condescends to speak in terms that normal humans can understand. Not for him the uh, cadence of elongated verbiage where the rule is, why use a short word when a long one will do? Instead, Paul's motto is speak so as to be understood. I love the old joke of the president who was once asked how long it would take him to prepare a half an hour talk he replied a week a whole week how long the next question came would it take him to prepare an hour talk he replied well only half a week and the question was a little bit surprised by this so followed up well then how long would it take you to prepare a two-hour talk and the president replied i'm ready now And so Paul carefully uses human terms that we will understand. Slavery, a startling analogy, but something we can all get. But then there's a specific call to action. Just you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, it leads in one direction. So now present your members as slaves that's going to leave in a different direction. And Of course, the key word here is present. It's a word that means uh, place beside, put at someone's disposal. Here is to put yourself at God's disposal. So Romans 12 verse 1, it means to offer the body as living sacrifice. Luke 1 verse 19 and 19 verse 24, the word means servants in attendance. So by using this word, Paul is saying here in the context the right question to ask about holiness, about sanctification, is not. What can I get away with? Or to be really practical, how far can I go when I am dating? You know, where's the line? No. Instead, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? See, we misunderstand sanctification, holiness. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. Wholeness is an active readiness to use everything we have for Christ. But I was talking about the way we're to focus all our energies on the pursuit of wholeness? Uh, one colleague of mine uh, in Oxford, a pastor there called Vaughan Roberts, he, he tells me that uh, the students there, he always asks them this question when they are getting towards the end of the year and considering what they're going to do next. The question he asks is this, with the person you are and the gifts God has given you, what can you do most to honor Christ? That's a great question. I think it's an appropriate rendition of what Paul was saying here. With the person you are, with the gifts that God has given you, what can you do most to honor Christ? You say, How do I figure that out? Well, here's one way. Write down that question in your journal on a piece of paper and put a line down the middle of that piece of paper. On the one side, write down all the abilities that you have and then all the preferences you have. On the other side of that line down the middle of that piece of paper, connect each of those to something specific that you can do for Christ. Do you love to cook? I love to eat. Let's get together. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like to teach? We have children meeting right down now and over the summer. Children who will be presidents and judges and pastors. Do you like to listen to people's problems? You know, there really are people like that. Perhaps you should get training as a counselor. If you haven't already or if you have, consider how you can use that training for the body of Christ. Perhaps you like to build things. We have buildings that need maintaining. We are a serving church, don't get me wrong we had a, um, a consultant once come in and looked at our serving ratio and they had just never seen such high returns of serving so I think we're doing well here but I still have conversations sometimes with people who say how can I connect what I'm wanting to do with something practical so I'm giving you some ideas I know many of us are good at selling things. We have many salesmen in our congregation. Do you realize that many of the greatest evangelists started out as salesmen? Perhaps uh, take the next evangelism training class and uh, with plain truth, not manipulation, learn how to lead people to Christ. Do you like public service? (laughs) There are many places today where the voice of honest, true, strong Christians needs to be heard. Do you long to see the poor helped, the hungry fed, wrongs righted, injustices made just, serve at the Outreach Community Center? People from this church have been very involved in that for many, many years. Visit prisons with koinonia ministries, many other. I'm just listing one or two. If your ministry isn't mentioned now, please don't write me a letter afterwards. I'm just giving you some examples. Do you like to travel, go on short-term missions? Maybe you'll be called to a long term mission. You see, sanctification is all about, as Paul puts it, presenting your members. That is, offering service to the cause of Christ. So, analogy to illustrate reality, to lead to action. There were many uh, dark days during World War II, so we just sort of wrap up here. one point, uh, there was a desperate need for an increase in coal production. And Winston Churchill called together labor leaders to enlist their support. And at the end of his talk, he asked them to imagine a parade which he knew would be held in Piccadilly Circus in London after the war. First, he said, would come the sailors who had kept the vital sea lanes open. Then would come the soldiers who had come from Dunkirk and gone on to defeat Rommel in Africa. Then would come pilots who had fought the air war. Last of all, he said, would come a long line of sweat-stained, soot-streaked men in miners' And someone would cry from the crowd, And where were you during the critical days of our struggle? And from 10,000 throats would come the answer, We were deep in the earth with our faces to the coal. Oh, I know, serving is not glamorous but I suspect it's the only way to get things done. You know, in the great parade in heaven where 10,000,000 will join in choral song, first will be the famous names, household heroes, then the leaders and the great ones, and last of all, with their faces to the coal, will come countless holy ones Patches on the knees of their pants from prayer work. Wrinkles around their eyes from counseling work. Calluses on their hands from physical work. And of these, last of all, we will ask, where were you? And they will say, presenting ourselves as living sacrifices to serve Christ. Let's pray together. Oh Lord Jesus we come to this your now this now your table you are the servant one the servant king help us to receive from you and so be empowered to serve you in Jesus name amen